The motion was passed. 275 votes to 153. Causing not only a national but also an international crisis and scandal. Six, year, six years later, this group of young Englishmen were confronted with exactly that call to fight for king and for nation. To confront one of the most monstrous empires in modern history or in any human history, to fight for, to the death for the king and country. Psalm 137 finishes with the horror verse of the Bible. Verse 9, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's brilliant poetry, shocking us in its crude barbarity, leaving us dangling with such an emphatic image that makes us want to recoil in horror. What kind of poet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no less, would write such a verse as verse 9. It's so shocking that some people want to leave it out of the Bible, want to leave this psalm out of the Bible. Some prayer books leave it out, and many people refuse to read this psalm in church. But there it is. There's God's word for us. We must deal with it. We mustn't explain it away and pretend it's not there. We must understand it and see what it teaches us, what we learn from it, how we are to live by the light of it. And today, as our planes, Australian planes, drop bombs in Iraq, we're again confronted with a barbaric enemy. An enemy whom we're told this time, though, is just like us like Bible-believing Christians, that is, religious extremists who take their scriptures literally. They are taking their scriptures literally. People like you and I take our Bible literally. We're the same. We're religious extremists and therefore dangerous. After all, anybody can find in the Bible the kind of barbarism that you find in the Quran, can't they? Look at verse 9. Happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. We live in an era when people want to have ethics in warfare. We today talk of war criminals. It's a very strange concept because most of what people do in war is criminal. If it were in peacetime, you'd lock them up as criminals. But there are things done in war that go beyond war in their barbarity. It's more than fighting, it's, it's so inhumane that we call them criminal. We call them crimes against humanity. But that language actually confuses two different meanings of the word crime and elevates humanity over morality. For crime is only something outlawed by government. It's a crime to drive down the, the street on the wrong side. That's a crime. Nothing to do with morality, you would think. And there are other things like committing adultery. That's not a crime. 
The crime has another meaning, a connotation that is exceedingly immoral. But what is the exceeding immorality? Well, it's got to do with humanity. Humanity is seen as the ultimate intuitive standard of what's right or what's wrong. But it's only seen like that if you're a godless person, an atheist, who does not have God to offend or any morality and evil. In a war, people kill, maim, injure, rape, pillage. We destroy property and we destroy life. Some do it with inhumane ferocity. Others know a limit that will not allow them to go so far. Some know how to act in order to create terror in the opposition. Others do it to destroy a whole civilization or a whole ethnic group in what we call now ethnic cleansing, killing every man, woman and child as Joshua was to do when he entered into the promised land. It's possible to see excess in war, but it's very hard, frankly, to develop ethics in war. War is hell. But the horror of our verse is the blessing it bestows on what appears to be one of the worst excesses of war. The horror verse says, the man who dashes little children's heads on the rocks is the blessed one. Uh, Some translates the word blessed as happy, but you realize how silly it is. That's just a psychological state of a sick mind to be happy doing. It's not saying you're happy, it's saying you're blessed, but saying you're blessed is even worse. The verse is saying something much larger than happy. It's saying he will be blessed. He will have God's favor for doing such a dastardly deed. Well, how could that be? Let's look at the psalm and see what it's saying as a whole. It comes in three separate moods. Firstly, verses 1 to 3 is an invitation to sing. But it's an invitation that's impossible to accept. The strange and beautiful songs of Israel cannot really be sung on request and can't be sung while in Babylon. How can you sing of Jerusalem when it's lying in ruins, destroyed by the Babylonians, destroyed by the very men who are now asking you to sing the songs of Jerusalem? Singing is a matter of joy. The poet is in depression. Singing of Jerusalem, well, it's a travesty when you're a slave in Babylon. Sing us the songs of Zion. Zion was the hill in Jerusalem where the temple of God stood. The wonderful temple of Solomon stood with all its wealth and glory, but now it was the ruin. The Babylonians had stripped it of its wealth, broken down its walls, burnt it to ruin. Zion was the hill in Jerusalem where the temple of God, the wonderful temple of Solomon, stood as a house of prayer for all nations. It's place where God met man in the holiness of forgiveness. But now the the Babylonians had defiled it in sacrilege, destroying the very holiness of the house of the holy God. How can I sing the songs of Zion that they, the degenerate, 
spoilers in their sacrilege want me to entertain them with? It's not possible. The second section of the psalm reflects on Jerusalem as my highest joy. Verses 4 to 6. The problem is that we're in a foreign land and being a foreigner is always an alienating experience. Being enslaved in a foreign land is even more than alienating. Being an Israelite whose identity is caught up in living in the promised land of God around his city and around his temple makes the whole experience depressingly awful. To sing of Jerusalem is to remind myself of all that has been lost, all that we have lost. To sing of Jerusalem for these Babylonian captors and destroyers is to betray my city, is to betray my God. Jerusalem is the very city of God, not the wonders of the canal system of Babylon. Jerusalem is the very city of God, not the wealth of Babylon with its hanging gardens and world empires. It's Jerusalem that is my highest joy, not this city. Jerusalem is my longing in my homeland. It is the center of the universe and the place where God himself lives. If I ever forget Jerusalem, if I ever forget the wonderful city of God and settle for the flesh pots of Babylon, may I myself be destroyed. Many, of course, did forget Jerusalem. Many made a good life for themselves in Babylon and when the opportunity came to go home, they refused to go. They stayed on in Babylon rather than return to the rubble heap that was Jerusalem. But the faithful... The remnant, the people of God, they went home in due time to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. So the psalmist declares his highest joy is that of Jerusalem and all that Jerusalem stood for. The city of God, the temple of God, the people of God, the inheritance of the promised land of God, the Messiah's throne, it's all there in Jerusalem. And as he remembers his highest joy, he recalls, thirdly, the enemies of Zion in verses 7 to 9. The Edomites and the Babylonians. They went out of their way to destroy that which was his highest joy. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, Jacob and Esau, the two brothers. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau and therefore they were the kin of Israel, the distant cousins but their father, Esau, didn't value the birthright that was his and sold it, if you remember, as for a bowl of soup. I've always thought it's a fairly poor deal. Not only was it just a bowl of soup, but it was lentil soup at that. And he sold the whole promised land for a bowl of lentil soup. I have higher taste. And instead of treating the Israelites as their brothers, which they should have done, the Edomites had a bitter antagonism towards Israel. So when the Babylonians came to destroy Jerusalem, the Edomites egged on the Babylonians and joined in plundering the holy city. The book of Obadiah is written against the Edomites, especially for what they did when Jerusalem fell. Let's see if we can find it in our Bibles. Uh, Obadiah, I've got down here, I think, the wrong page number. It's 933, but I don't think that's right. But it's in that direction. 
9.20, thank you, 9.20. It's only a short book, so you do need page numbers on this one, 920. And if you look there at verse 8, God says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and the understanding men of Mount Esau? And then he describes this down in verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Edom didn't go and rescue, didn't go and help, didn't go and stand, stood far off, but even worse. I mean, that's what the Turks are doing at the moment, aren't they? With that terrible city that's being destroyed by the IS, they're just standing with their tanks ready, watching over what is happening, but they're not doing anything. That's bad. But the Edomites were worse. They went down and plundered. They went down and shared with the Babylonians. And when any Jews sought to get away, they stopped them getting away. Uh, so now our psalmist in verse 7 writes, calling upon the Lord to act as judge and witness. Remember what they did to us. Remember what they did to your city. And in verses 8 and 9, he turns his attention to the main enemy of God's people, the main enemy of God, the Babylonians. They are doomed to destruction, for they have raised their hand against God and against his people. They have had the appalling audacity to destroy God's holy temple. So the psalmist doesn't call upon God to act, but assures the Babylonians that he will. That no one who destroys Babylon, as Babylon is certain to be destroyed, that the one who destroys Babylon, rather, will be blessed by God for doing the work of destroying Babylon. For as it has been done by the Babylonians to Jerusalem, so it shall be done to the Babylonians. As they dashed their little ones' heads against the rocks in that willful, barbaric act of destroying God's people and the future of God's people by killing the children, so shall they see their own little ones, their future destroyed in the judgment of God. Clearly then the background of this psalm is important to grasp the feelings that are being described by the poet here. It's like, say, our word barley. It brings all kinds of connotations with it, doesn't it? To many it means a holiday of exotic pleasures. To some of us it means a very bad stomach ache, the barley belly. For others, though, the name now means bombs and terrorists and senseless waste of life. So the word Babylon carries with it these connotations might, wealth, power, yes, but also captivity and slavery and desecration. For 
When the slaves were in Babylon, the Israelites were at the very lowest of their low. They're no longer God's people. They're no longer in God's promised land. They're now returned to being slaves in a foreign land, which is where Moses met up with them back in Egypt. All their hopes seem to have been dashed. The thought of having Jerusalem, having the temple, would save them, they thought. As God saved Jerusalem and the temple from the Assyrians in the days of Hezekiah, he would save Jerusalem and the temple from the Babylonians. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, but God did not save the temple of the Lord. No, they, because of their sinfulness, were sent into captivity for 70 years. And while in captivity, they were to accept the judgment of God. There's no point fighting against it. You'll be there for 70 years. And then you will have salvation. For God was going to raise up a a Christ, the pagan Cyrus, to rescue them. In the meantime, what they're told to do is to settle down and to work hard and to seek the peace of the city of Babylon not because Babylon is a place that deserved peace or would ever be saved, but because if you sought the peace of Babylon, then you could marry and your children could, could marry and your grandchildren could be produced so that in 70 years' time, when Babylon will be destroyed and destroyed it will be, then you will be able to go home, a new nation starting all over again. For Babylon was an evil city, the symbol of overweening pride in its defiance of Yahweh, the city doomed to destruction and condemnation of God. The Jewish captives were never to seek the salvation of Babylon, but they were to seek the peace of Babylon only so much that they could themselves be spared in the destruction and rebuild the salvation city of Jerusalem. And the fulfillment of this destruction of Babylon came. The promise came when the Medo-Persian Empire came and destroyed the Babylonians, conquering its people, releasing its slaves, and sending the Jews back to the promised land to rebuild the city. The fulfillment came with the destruction of Babylon, which to this day lies in ruins never to be rebuilt. Though the real fulfillment comes... Not in the Christ called Cyrus, but the Christ called Jesus, whose birth brought the king of Judah to the point of killing little boys in Bethlehem, whose life brought the Jews to declare, we have no king but Caesar, away with him, crucify him, crucify him, and whose death brought an end to the temple in Jerusalem. Its veil split its wall of hostility destroyed, and the sacrifice for sins that never took away sins was done away with. For the real fulfillment comes in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the temple of God, who is the city of God, who is the real sacrifice for the sins of the world, whose kingdom brings the ultimate destruction of Babylon and all that Babylon stood for in the book of Revelation, And the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is no temple, for God dwells with his people and his people dwell with God. For in Jesus we find the final judgment of God upon sin, 
when justice will finally be done for all those people who have so appallingly been treated by wicked men in this lifetime. There will be justice, my friends, and it will come with Jesus in the end. And that's why verse 9 is so crucial. It's the crucial verse that we mustn't ignore or cut out of our Bibles or prayer books, but rather live by. Let me show you just five consequences that flow from this verse. Firstly, it's a verse that po- <coughs> excuse me, poetically and powerfully captures for us the genuine horror of sin. The verse is not approving of child bashing. It relies for its powerful and emotive effect upon the total horror of such an action. You're supposed to read it and say, yuck, awful, no. It's supposed to have a reaction to you. If it was not so horrible, the verse would have no impact. It's because it is so horrible that the verse has the impact that it has. Indeed, it's picking up one of the very worst features of barbarian warfare, to highlight the nature of sin and the requirements of justice. It it could have picked another one. In another war, it would have. It could have picked rape. Or it could have picked impaling like Vlad impales people. Or it could have picked today like ISIS. It could have picked on crucifying or, or beheading people. But it chose what the Babylonians did. The Babylonians smashed the heads of little children. That was their horrible beheadings. And so, is so doing it was conveying the horror of the destruction of Jerusalem and claiming that in comparison to these wicked men in their bestial destruction, those who do the same to them would be called blessed by God for removing such an appalling culture as the Babylonians. Secondly, and that flows from that, this verse then illustrates to us the retributive nature of justice. Look at verse 8. O daughter of Babylon doomed to be destroyed, blessed is he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. It's not about people who are going to enjoy smashing kids willy-nilly. It's about doing to the Babylonians what the Babylonians have done to us. For the Bible teaches us that people should and will receive what they deserve. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that's the limit of it, but that's the nature of it as well. In Isaiah 13, there is an oracle concerning Babylon where God speaks of executing his anger on the evil city by raising up the Medes. And it says their infants the Babylonians, will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, their houses will be plundered and their wives ravaged. Now hold on, I'm stirring up the meads against them. They have no regard for silver and don't delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. The people of Babylon who were so merciless will receive no mercy. And this understanding of justice has the intuitive force of victims in every age who are never satisfied until they see the perpetrators punished. 
the executions of Nuremberg. Nobody seemed much to object to it. The execution of Saddam Hussein, the killing of Osama bin Laden, people rejoiced, cheered. And outside the courtrooms, repeatedly in our nation, we see victims' families cry for justice, not for leniency, but for justice. My little child was killed by this monster. That child has no future life. Our family suffers for the rest of our life. And you will send him away for three years? How does three years equate to the life of a child? That cry comes up over and over, for intuitively we know that justice requires punishment, a punishment that is equal to the crime. Uh, those of us like the effete upper-class undergraduates at Oxford University who could afford to go there during the middle of the Depression and have debates and who have not endured the pain and suffering of humans' inhumanity, we need to be very careful of our self-righteous sentimentality. Can you imagine what the people who are suffering in Iraq want to be done to their tormentors and their torturers today? Thirdly, this verse shows us something that we don't like. There's lots of it we don't like, but something in particular, namely the corporate nature of sin and justice. You may want to wash your hands of our nation's decisions, but you can't. We're Australians. We take responsibility for it, whether we like it or not. We invaded Iraq under Mr Howard's government. We're dropping bombs under Mr Abbott's government. We can't say, and there's no point saying, well, look, I didn't vote for Mr Howard. I didn't vote for Mr Abbott. That's an irrelevancy in war. The IS has asked for any and all Australians to be killed because it's not just Mr Howard or Mr Abbott or anybody like that dropping bombs. It's us. We're doing it. And when a foreign power invades us, it's irrelevant to say, well, I didn't vote for the leader. We want to complain about the innocent people in the World Trade Towers being killed or all those terribly innocent girls in Nigeria a few months ago that were kidnapped and have now been dropped off the pages of the newspaper because the journalists don't care anymore. We've got to go on to something new, haven't we? All the many people who have suffered in the war in Syria, civil wars are always the worst. But they're all part of the same world system of humanity. The terrorists who are doing it feel oppressed. And if they're dropping bombs on you, why wouldn't you feel oppressed and unjustly treated? Just as the other side feel oppressed and unjustly treated. Because it's war, and war is hell. Humanity has waged war against God, and when you wage war against God, you start to wage war against yourself. And that is what we are seeing is happening. It's awful. 
Fourthly, the verse reminds us of the reality of one of, of one's highest joys. For it's one thing to say, I believe in God. It's another thing to have God as your highest joy, as your God. For the psalmist's highest joy is Jerusalem. Its destruction can't be ignored. Its destroyer must be punished. Is humanity our highest joy, that crimes against humanity are the world's worst things? Or is Christ our highest joy, that blaspheming his name causes our deepest distress? Finally, and most importantly, this verse reminds us that there is no forgiveness without atonement. People want to forgive rather than punish, and that's right. Christians should have as our knee-jerk reaction forgiveness. But forgiveness without punishment is not forgiveness. It's acceptance. Acceptance of evil. We aren't forgiven because God has forgotten about our sin or because he's accepted our sinfulness. We're forgiven because our Lord Jesus Christ has died to pay for our sinfulness. I mean, sometimes when somebody steps on my toe in the bus, the atonement is paid for by me. I have the pain. They have the forgiveness. I don't chase them down the road to retaliate with a quick stamp on their toe. In fact, I turn the other foot, so to speak. But the pain is there. All sin creates pain. When the city of God is destroyed, when little ones are barbarically slaughtered, when sin is exposed, then punishment is required. And that's what Jesus, that's why Jesus chose to die on the cross. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. That's why it was all so barbaric, because our sin is so appalling and our rebellion against God is so ghastly that it required God to take upon himself the horror of our sin in all its full force to be genuinely pardoned and to be fully forgiven. See, this verse reminds us that because sin is so awful, justice is so harsh. And when we remember that, and think of Jesus on the cross, we also remember that God's love in Christ is so astonishing and God's grace in Christ is so amazing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he indeed dealt with sin in all its horror and took upon himself the punishment of for the sins of the world, that he who knew no sin would be made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, Father in heaven. We thank you for your amazing grace and the faithfulness of your Son, even unto death, that this world of evil, which requires such punishment, can be dealt with by you so graciously in your son's death. Help us, please, Father, to live and to proclaim your justice in this world and your mercy in the gospel of our Lord and Saviour. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.